You're listening to A Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, December 4th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. The House Impeachment Report is out. Have you read it? Don't worry. Neither has Dan Savage or Rich Smith or myself. The House Judiciary Committee is holding its impeachment proceedings right now. Have you watched it? No. Don't worry. We did watch that, and we're going to talk about it and give you the highlights. After that, Dan, Rich, and me are going to talk about Kamala Harris, who is now out of the presidential race. Why did her campaign fail? Was she really a cop? We will get into all of that. And then Jasmine Keimig is here, along with Chase Burns, to talk about some movies you should be paying attention to, Atlantic's. On Netflix, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks about Mr. Rogers. And then Chase digs deep into the Tom Hanks oppo research file and brings up some dark DVD history from Tom Hanks's 1980s past that you should be aware of right now. But first, Dan Savage, Rich Smith, and me on impeachment. Rich, good morning. Good morning, Eli. Dan, good morning to good you. Good morning. Could we, but uh, I would like to uh, request a parliamentary uh, procedure <laughs> review of the rules. I think gentleman's out of order for issuing good morning. I'm going to call, call a voice, voice vote. The gentleman from Missouri is out of order now <laughs> and continuing. Most of the gentlemen from Missouri are. <laughs> and the gentleman from Chicago stole my gavel. <laughs> so I can't. We won't say where it is. Shut right this, this down. <laughs> you can keep it. They have a flared base, you know, if you look at them from a different angle. True. The gentleman from Missouri would like to request what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> but the I, gentleman I, from Chicago will suspend. <laughs> so will the gentleman from uh, Missouri. And I will remind us all that the House impeachment report just came out. 300 pages, not as long as the Mueller report, but probably just as unread as the Mueller report. And we have sped on to the House Judiciary impeachment proceedings which are in all of our brains right now because we were watching them just before we started recording i watched house judiciary chairman jerry nadler of new york open the proceedings i thought he gave a really good succinct summary of what trump has been up to and how he and is a lot of citations to the founding fathers and mm-hmm. their concerns basically outline exactly what trump has been up to it's almost like trump read the founding fathers concerns <laughs> about uh, you know, foreign meddling in American elections and some foreign potente, however you say that word, seizing uh, control of our country and decided to yeah, reverse engineer that and just fucking do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Putin read that. Yeah. But uh, the other thing that I thought Jerry Nadler pointed out was Trump's continuing pattern of behavior. He just he put it very simply. We've been looking for people who can come up with good sound bites. I didn't think Jerry Nadler was going to be one of them, but he actually did all right in his opening statement anyway. And he pointed out that Trump solicited interference in the 2016 election. Remember when he got up on in front of the cameras and asked Putin to hack his opponent, Hillary. And Mueller found that the very next day they did exactly what Trump asked. Right. And then 
Mueller reported to Congress that all of this happened and that he was concerned that foreign interference would be a continuing problem in American elections. And the very next day, Trump got on the phone with uh, the president of Ukraine. Because there wasn't enough foreign interference just from Russia. Trump wanted to enlist, well, blackmail Ukraine into doing a little foreign interference and then get on television and invite China to do a little foreign interference. What I don't understand at this point is why Democrats haven't gotten on television and said, hey, Germany, hey, Canada, hey, France. You don't like this motherfucker any more than we do. Can we get some foreign interference on our side? Oh, my God. That's the only way that we would get Republicans to stand up and say, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Voter suppression efforts. Republicans would see how wrong they were if Dems ever picked that weapon up and used it. If Dems purged voter rolls in Republican districts, if Dems targeted districts with, you know, lots of white voters for purges and voter suppression efforts and closing polling stations, Republicans would see that this was probably a problem. It's just that thing that Dems do where we're in Washington to set a good example for the Republicans and we would never stoop to the level. We would never play on the field that they are playing on and kicking our asses on. Yeah, a Dem candidate running for president should invite Germany and France and Justin Trudeau, who did put in a great performance at the NATO summit reception at Buckingham Palace yesterday to interfere in our election because apparently this is a permissible now. The thing that I am uh, personally ashamed about regarding the judiciary hearings is that I listened to the Nadler opening statement and then I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to the Republican uh, ranking members opening statement. And I listened and it was just more kind of dust throwing and a lot of nonsense, really. And then came the parliamentary objections, which Rich was trying to use on Blabbermouth, which I hope I shut down for good. But Nadler didn't really shut him down. And I just, I had this response of, well, I can't, I don't want to listen to this. I don't want to listen to them fighting. And I shut it off. And then I remembered that that is exactly what the point of it all is. It's something that Trump does. It's something that Nunes does. If you just basically act like a skunk and stink up the whole proceeding, then people will turn away from it. And if you get them to turn away before people start laying out the facts, then the facts get laid out, but no one's paying attention to them because they've just turned off from the whole thing, which also broadly is what American intelligence agencies say Putin wants Americans to think about democracy in general, that it's just a disgusting, impossible exercise that you can't trust and you got to turn away from and move towards something else. Whatever. Since you don't know who's lying, you don't know who's telling the truth, it's not worth the bother and just pick a side, go with your tribe. I have the same problem now. I'm a political junkie going way back. I used to watch every debate. I actually canceled a date with a hot guy in the 80s to watch the Reagan-Mondale debate. <laughs> That's how weird I am, how long this has been going on. I have not been able to watch the Democratic debates. I, I listened to Nadler's opening statement. I listened to Schiff's opening statement. I had the same reaction. No, I can't listen to Nunes bullshit like this. I couldn't listen to the asshole today. Bullshit like this, the ranking member. And I shut it down. And I'm just watching like the write on clips on Twitter that get passed around by people I agree with. And I'm being siloed in this way. But there's no upside to listening to the right wing argument because it isn't an argument that wrestles with the facts. It's just bullshit and throwing up dust, like you said. And I can't stand it well, and, I, and i'm turning off the tv but i'm also but it's like it's bigger than that because i'm not watching the democratic debates either like i'm losing some capacity to just like sit through bullshit to get to the nuggets knowing now that the nuggets are all going to come to me 
the golden nuggets are going to come to me on Twitter and I don't have to sit through the bullshit. It's a failure of um, uh, broadcast journalism, which um, if which but, is fine for me. Well, this is C-SPAN, yeah. though. This is there's no journalism intermediary. This right. is this is just the uncut, uncensored Judiciary Committee proceedings, and it's having this effect. Well, I think that you both uh, maybe turn off a little bit uh, too soon because there was a moment in the uh, proceedings where uh, one of the uh, people giving testimony, one of the one of the th- three of four liberal professors uh, giving uh, testimony, who will be dismissed as such, but who were very persuadable and were dismissed as such. Oh, were the, they? the ranking member? This also uh, disgusted me, but it was intended to disgust me. Yeah. Spent so long arguing against the value of even listening to law professors and demeaning law professors and academics and all that. And like, okay, I get it. And it's easy to do. But it's Wasn't also, Obama a law professor? Right. But it's a part of this, like, you can't trust what you see. Don't believe what you hear. Only believe us. Right. And only only listen to you know who we tell you not to listen to. More on expertise because to. reality, as Stephen Colbert pointed out in front of George W. Bush's lying face, has a liberal bias. Mm-hmm. So don't believe climate scientists. Don't believe law professors. Don't believe journalists. Only believe us. And Rich Smith, who was saying something important before <laughs> he got filibustered by me and Dan. Uh, 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 only jumping in briefly uh, to stand up for uh, someone who was persuas- persuasive to me, Pamela uh, Carlin, the Stanford law professor, who I think was the second person to um, uh, to give testimony, who, you know, one of the ranking members, I think Representative Adams, uh, said, you know, s- claimed that she didn't read all of the evidence before giving her uh, opinion on whether or not these were impeachable defenses, clapped back and said that she was insulted as a law professor, that he would suggest that she didn't do all of her homework beforehand, which she absolutely fucking did and read every page. And that kind of like anger coming back from the um, from from witness yeah from a witness was like mirrors fiona um hill's uh, testimony where she was kind of admonishing the republicans and 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 doing the fighting that i don't know i think that people respect or see as as authentic i, I think if you if you if you pu- push them into the corner of don't trust this liberal professor don't trust this liberal professor but then the liberal professor owns you to use a Twitter <laughs> fee, I think that the person is like, well, okay, you know, uh, maybe I do trust that. There's two professor. things I think that went on there. Like, God, I like the ancient pop culture political references machine today. But like Bob Dole's point, that yeah. a liberal <laughs> is someone who won't take their own side in an argument. Yeah. Right? What we saw from her, what we saw from Fiona Hill, were liberals punching back. Yeah. Liberals taking their own side in the fucking argument, yeah. which I think even people who aren't liberal want to see, and liberals want to see. But, you know, some t- like Clinton said, they'd rather go with someone who's strong and wrong rather than someone who's right and weak. And liberals are often in these exchanges and these hearings so solicitous and, and so civil and polite that they come across as weak even when they're right and they're dealing with someone who's lying their fucking face off as the ranking members in every fucking committee seem to be Absolutely. doing in the House. But it's, the other thing I wanted to say about uh, Pamela Car- – is it Pamela? Yeah, Pamela about Carlin, Pamela yeah. Carlin. Uh, as others have pointed out, she was an administration official in the Justice Department and the Obama administration. She's a law professor. She uh, clerked for the Supreme Court. She trains people who uh, litigate before the Supreme Court. If Hillary Clinton had been elected president, she might be sitting on the Supreme Court. Mm. So liberals and progressives who are like, don't lecture me about the court, who are loving Pamela Carlin today, who weren't excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. Well, if you've been excited about voting for Hillary Clinton, you could be excited about seeing Pamela Carlin on the fucking Supreme Court. And just, just a jump- small note on Fiona Hill. I'm I'm not sure she's a liberal. She was the Russia expert, you know, in the Trump administration. She did work under Obama, but then she worked under Republicans. I see her as an intellectual punching back. I guess I'm using Trump's definition of liberal, which is anybody who isn't picking the corn (laughs) out of Trump's shit is a liberal. Yeah. But I just, I, 
something Rich said on last week's show really stuck with me. You were talking about Fiona Hill and others and and that, you know, we journalists really love it when uh, rational, expert, thoughtful people punch back, but you weren't sure that the masses love it, you know, and but I'm heartened to hear that there's something this week from the Judiciary Committee where an expert academic, easy to malign person is punching back and it's landing. Well, and yeah, it, just on that point, we're all pundits now. Uh, like all public opinion, when you ask people what they think, they're always worried about like what their neighbor is going to think. They're going to, you know, like I would support Bernie Sanders, but you know, I don't think that my neighbor in Iowa is going to support him. So I'm going to go, you know, here, I'm going to go there. And so what um, uh, Carlin is doing is modeling the kind of punditry that people will then reflect back to journalists when they ask them how they think that the you know hearings did or whatever. Mm-hmm. So people need that those rhetorical models to um, fill themselves into because that's the that's the state of the discourse. You know? So the House Intelligence Committee has finished his job. This is what I mistakenly, sorry Dan, called the shift show last week. <laughs> but the House Intelligence Committee's proceedings are over and they published a report and it's 300 pages and it came out yesterday and I have not read it and we'll just we'll just pretend that you both have have read it but probably you haven't and still I've read things written by people who read other people who read it. <laughs> yeah and the Mueller report which came out I don't know how many months ago and is more than 300 pages I honestly still haven't read and I just wanted to uh, acknowledging that reality and acknowledging all of our short attention spans and how hard it is to actually read through the thoughtful, meticulous reports that actually do support all these allegations that are flying all the time. I wanted to direct people to the illustrated Mueller report, which just came out. I have it right here in my hand. If I dropped it on the desk here, it would not make anything close to the clamorous thunk that the actual Mueller report would. It would kind of drift down like a leaf. And it is this illustrated guide to what's in the Mueller report. It is very uh, carryable and it is very giftable. It's out just in time for the holidays. And it's published by the Washington Post, the Amazon Washington Post, I guess, if you're a, a skeptic. But it's not like made up stuff. It's all linked back to the Mueller report, but with pictures and in graphic novel form. So you can I'm holding out for the read manga it and style have one. said credibly that you've read the Mueller report. I want the manga style one. I want the one with <laughs> Japanese boys having sex. That's the Mueller report I'm holding out for. We've had the live readings of the Mueller report on both coasts with famous actors. Now we have the illustrated Mueller report, the original Mueller report. I need the pornographic Mueller report to grab my attention. Well, I haven't finished the illustrated Mueller report, so I'm not saying there's not a <laughs> finish like that at the end. So I just don't know like how many different ways can the Mueller report be packaged to trick <laughs> Americans into reading it. Like we know what Mueller found uh, and Mueller testified that the Russians interfered in our election and they were continuing to interfere in our election uh, and that everyone should have their you know be running in circles with their hair on fire about it. He said that basically uh, during his testimony before the House. And, you know, there's this kind of helplessness in the face of it because we know nothing is going to be done. So how much time and energy can you expend on running around in circles with your hair on fire when you've got to, you know, get dinner on the table and and run around and do whatever the fuck it is you have to do in your daily life? Nothing's going to happen. Trump, uh, like, I love the the hearings. I hope they go on forever. Uh, Jamel Bowie in the New York Times said, I don't think he stole this from me. I think he arrived at it uh, also, that the Democrats should drag the hearings on until September. Mm -hmm. 
and and just proceed. Don't kick it to the Senate. Don't send the impeachment uh, to the Senate. Don't impeach him and and then pass it to the Senate. Drag it out forever uh, throughout the campaign. And especially if the counter argument from one of the professors today was that the evidentiary or that the evidence is too thin, that we need to hear from Bolton and we need to mm-hmm. hear from Trump. And, and, and the reason why we're not hearing from Bolton and Trump, though, is that they're not agreeing to participate in a hearing. So if you drag which is it itself out, obstruction of justice, right, which is yeah. one of the articles that the judiciary is going to um, draw up. Uh, the evidence today. is thin because everybody that because everyone in the Trump administration isn't being allowed to testify, which is obstruction of justice. The White House has produced zero documents. Mm-hmm. The Obama White House produced billions of documents about the Benghazi bullshit on request, <laughs> and the, the Trump administration has produced zero requested documents. It's obstruction the way of justice on Jerry face. Nadler put it in his opening statement, which is the only thing I listened to today, is that uh, one of the last presidents to be impeached, Richard Nixon, produced recordings. Bill Clinton, the last president to be impeached, gave his own blood as part of the impeachment proceedings, but Donald Trump has produced nothing and told everyone else around him not to testify. Which is an impeachable offense. One of the articles of impeachment for Nixon was obstruction of justice. That's enough, even if because of the Trump administration, uh, because of their obstruction, the evidence might be arguably thin, according to the conservative uh, legal prof. Um, that doesn't get them off the hook for impeachment, or shouldn't, but probably will. Because, as I was helpfully reminded today, high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't necessarily mean like murder. The high <laughs> just refers that to the fact that you are high in office. Mm-hmm. And that doing any kind of crimes and misdemeanors while holding that high post is what is impeachable so uh obstruction of justice a crime in the you know in the legal uh a crime uh, when anyone else does when it. anyone else does it um definitely falls it. into that um a definition on the waiting for bolton to come in with the testimony that will end all testimonies and send trump you know out of office and into prison or whatever and finally put hillary clinton in the oval i have yeah speak mustache <laughs> speak mustache I have started to come around to this idea of like, no, don't do perpetual hearings in the House. Let it go to the Senate. You know, the Democrats have been saying like, we're not going to get drawn into ropadopes. The Senate might be a Democratic ropadope where you have in the Senate Justice Roberts, the chief of the Supreme Court presiding in the Senate. He can he can arrange for Bolton to appear, I would think. Like, if the problem is that they're waiting for a ruling from the highest judicial official in the land on whether Bolton should testify, Justice Roberts can sit there in the Senate, I think, and just say, yeah, bring him in. (laughs) So maybe we'll get him then. Also appearing at the Senate trial for sure right now, because she's got some more time on her hands, is Kamala Harris. We're going to talk about the end of her presidential campaign next. Rich, I'm here to do my weekly check on your sheets. Yep. Dry, cold, and holy. Holy, you mean as in like spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Because the Bolin Branch sheets that you've been using, they don't tear. No, they don't rip. They just get softer and softer with each wash. You might need another pair at some point. Mm-hmm. Pair of sheets. And uh, Bolin Branch has a lot of them. They are the most comfortable sheets in the world, so they're selling fast, but you can still get them They are the only bedding loved by three U.S. presidents. That's how popular they are. Huge. And for a limited time, you can get their luxury flannel bedding to keep you cool sleepers warm. And you warm sleepers cool. 
Shipping is always free. You can try them out for 30 nights risk-free. And right now you get $50 off your first set of sheets at BowlingBranch.com with promo code Blabbermouth. Get $50 off at BowlingBranch.com promo code Blabbermouth. Spelled B-O-L-L and Branch.com code Blabbermouth. Rich Kamala Harris is no longer a presidential candidate, but you knew that last week because you read it in the New York Times. Yeah, that piece was gossipy as a hell. Fifty former, uh, now former, I guess, aides spoke to the New York Times. Many on the record and some current aides, yes. not yet former aides. Yeah, including people Campaign who, staffers. Yeah, yeah, including campaign staffers, like high-level campaign staffers who were blamed by low-level campaign staffers for fucking up. And then those high-level uh, campaign staffers pointed e- up even higher and you know, ultimately laid the blame um, for the disillusion and failure of uh, Harris's campaign on Harris uh, herself. And yeah, there was a number of reasons why it, why it failed. And you know, the argument for our ridiculous political system with our never-ending presidential campaigns is that if someone can run a campaign, which mm-hmm. is a hugely complicated organization that really is kind of a federal organization, that is proof that they could run the federal government. So uh-huh. if they can't run their own campaign, they're probably disqualified from the presidency itself. So if your mm-hmm. campaign is a jalopy and falling apart and everybody's stabbing each other and and telling tales out of school, yeah. that means you're not the leader that maybe the country needs. And I'm not criticizing Harris here. I'm just talking about, you know, an argument that get made, you know, we're looking at Britain right now where they're having their, their, uh, a national election and it's six weeks yeah. from the starting gun to the, to the vote being counted. And ours goes on now for two years plus. Uh-huh. And, you know, if that, if people believe that to be true, if that's like the advantage of our never ending campaign is it proves that somebody can run the federal government, then those articles in Politico and New York Times were disqualifying of Harris. Yeah, yeah. And the New York Times article came out like the day or so after Thanksgiving and it was headlined how Kamala Harris's campaign unraveled past tense. Yeah. Like <laughs> days cold. before, very cold days <sighs> before she came out and said, uh, yeah, I guess my campaign has unraveled and I'm going back to the Senate, but just give me a little more of the juicy gossip that, you remember from that article well i mean working backward i'm not quite sure what pieces of the puzzle like fell in first but i was particularly struck by a resignation letter by i think her state's campaign manager uh kelly mallenbacher who wrote in the second letter of that resignation letter like um i have never seen a campaign treated staff so poorly before you know in my life having worked on three presidential campaigns that's pretty damning she went on for a couple more paragraphs um she also went on to jump to the bloomberg campaign (laughs) and there were some conspiracy theories rattling around on the internet that that letter was the price that Bloomberg extracted. That was a demand Bloomberg made that she write and publicly released that letter as that's a condition a, of getting the job on his campaign. Oh, oh my, that's wow. a loyalty thing? Billionaires. As part job. of what he was buying and paying for. I, I call it a conspiracy theory because I don't right, right, right. believe it. That's interesting. Well, okay, so so that letter came out, maybe um, influenced by Bloomberg or not. I imagine that she immediately signed it and sent a copy to the New York Times and the Washington Post and said, have fun. But mm-hmm. then, um, you know, ultimately, um, it's like a, it's a three-part uh, failure story. Uh, part one is that um, she didn't uh, set up the organization well. The, the power was, I think, bifurcated between uh, her sister, who 
was uh, who was running uh, the campaign, and some uh, staffers thought that she spoke for Kamala, and then uh, her former campaign, uh, the person who was leading her California campaigns, uh, and who she had a long um, relationship uh, with, and the consulting firm he was attached to. So she had this bi-coastal arrangement where the pl- power was split, people didn't know who they were answering to. Um, the second part was the messaging was inconsistent. You know, she started strong with that CNN uh, town hall, and she she had that great uh, clapback against um, Biden at the debates, and that all uh, fed into the narrative that we all sort of loved about um, Harris, which was her ability to take down her opponent. Her first slogan was "For the people," which is referencing her role as the, a prosecutor in San Francisco right. and California as Attorney General um, of, of California. And then when that became controversial, Kamala the cop, she dropped it. Yeah, she dropped it. Instead of leaning into it, which is, though I uh, personally didn't like the fact that she was a cop, if I was advising that campaign, I'd be like, oh, yeah, be the cop, though. But Because <laughs> we need a cop yeah. right now because there's a bunch of fucking crooks running around <laughs> it, the White House. It tells a story. It's something she's, it's that she's natural when she talks about it. She was sounded unnatural when she was talking about her other campaign messages, which were something like, believe in the truth, or something was the first one, or like, the truth is true. And then, Stop, crackle, and pop. She was just like cycling yes. through them. Yes, and I can't remember really what the second one was, but then the third one, she went back to that prosecutorial message with like justice is on the ballot and um, that was her, her, her thing believe in the truth and the truth is true was kind of the slogan for this first segment of this show <laughs> just to say <laughs> i think that it works fine for a podcast i don't know if it works fine for a presidential campaign let's go back to the fact that kamala harris was a cop which is actually not a fact she was the attorney general of california and she was a prosecutor a federal prosecutor and a local prosecutor but rich you warned us you know, months and months and months ago that Kamala Harris is a cop. Yeah. And I just want to read something that uh, Amanda Marcotte at Slate wrote about this line of criticism. Sure. Kamala is a cop became the smarmy and endlessly repeated meme, one that was either originated by right-wing forces or perpetrated by them with a finely honed instinct for the worst urges of their leftist counterparts. I mean, presumably right-wing forces would love a cop, and so I doubt that they would... Well, they were uh, trying to discredit someone on the left with the left, not embracing the cop. Regardless of whether or not right-wing people also participate in the discourse, it has been... I think it's perfectly legitimate to argue that we don't need another prosecutor as uh, president, and we need fewer prosecutors, especially ones who um, sent to jail the parents of kids who were truant in high school, especially one who continued the... um, uh, uh, that what is it called when you the state kills someone? Capital punishment. <laughs> <laughs> My God, a big laugh line. Capital punishment. Sorry, no, I, I disagree. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that 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 it's a legitimate uh, policy no. position that many on the left uh, hold. But if we want so to bring people around right left... on criminal justice reform, it can help to have someone who's perceived as more conservative make that argument uh-huh. to have someone who's come around on that issue a nixon in china sort of cliche uh-huh. uh, can be more persuasive in that role than someone who's just seen as by conservatives or moderates or independents as a squish I- on the issue which is why i think you know if harris really got religion on criminal justice reform mm-hmm. her pointing to past positions and disavowing them and like explaining to people how she evolved, kind of like Obama explained to people how he evolved on gay marriage and then helped the country evolve on gay marriage, could have helped bring people, independents, people in the center around on large criminal justice reform moves because she would have had more credibility making that argument than, say, 
Warren. I take that, yeah, critique, and that's yeah, that's probably what I would advise her uh, to do as her campaign manager. But that points to another one of um, Harris's problems during the campaign, which was she ended up making a strong stance and then being wishy-washy on it. I mean, in the you know the debate performance is the classic example. She was always walking things back after debate. She would give an applause line at a debate performance around you know giving votes to uh, incarcerated people, uh, healthcare coverage to um, undocumented immigrants, and then walk it back. Yeah, afterwards. or busing you know she was like i was i i was bust and then they were like wait so you think that busing is good and then the next day she was like well i mean maybe not for everybody <laughs> and it's like come on you know, you know i'm gonna bust my position over here to the right a little bit so worse than being a cop she ended up not really kind of having strong stances uh on on her issues and that's that you know that um uh, reflected kind of the indecisiveness of the organizational structure of her campaign too but she was still pulling higher than some people who have money money enough to remain in the race She's pulling higher than Steyer, the right. billionaire, pulling higher than Bloomberg, Bloomberg. Uh, and pulling higher than some of the other people who aren't billionaires who are still in the race. And there's been a lot of critique of uh, this being evidence of you know white supremacism, evidence of, of racism in, in the, the electorate, that she wasn't getting the support that perhaps with her credentials compared to someone like Yang – she deserves a Buddha judge that, that that she has a better case to make for being commander in chief than Buddha judge. And yet he's raised more money and uh, is polling much higher than she is. The problem with that argument is that she doesn't, she wasn't getting African-American support uh, at any sort of great rate. Uh, and that can be, you know, that's not just, well, African-Americans weren't supporting her therefore, because a lot of African-American supporters, a lot of African-American voters are being strategic and trying to figure out who can win. And if that's a white person, they're going to go with that white person because the stakes are so high for people mm-hmm. who are more marginalized and, and, and at greater risk in this country. So there's some strategic kind of positioning going on for African-American voters. And I don't think it's just like an apples oranges comparison, but she had problems all over the place. And now that she has been successfully turned out of the Democratic presidential race, either because she's a cop or because she is a flawed candidate or all of the above and more, the next Democratic presidential debate will have only white people. That's right. Yeah. Unless Tulsi makes Makes it. it. And Yang, I think, is one poll away from making it and could still make it. So will that be a comfort? The, the the non-white person who's on the debate stage is Tulsi Gabbard or, or the non-white Yang. person who's on the debate stage and or I guess the non-white person who's on the debate stage is Andrew Yang. Can, can we just like, toss out there? Fuck Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> you you have be, successfully tossed it out there. Will it be a comfort? Like, will I be comforted by the fact that there's mostly all, or all white what people? What I'm saying is, a little bit, or is am I- when, when people are saying right now, well, look, now that Kamala Harris is out, we're going to have an all-white debate stage. And the comeback is, well, we've still got Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, who potentially can get in. I I end up thinking, uh, okay, is that a bonus? Like, <laughs> Meaning that People. the two of them are both uh, marginal candidates who are unlikely to go anywhere. And yeah. Kamala Harris was, for all her faults, much more viable. I also want to just uh, put in a, I guess, a pointless plug for the old idea that I had, and I know a lot of people had, that Kamala Harris, yeah, she wasn't taking off, but imagine all the different people on the Democratic debate stage squaring off against Trump one-on-one in a presidential debate. She actually might have been the best person. She is so uh, tough and withering 
and really skilled at pinning uh, evasive and bullying men down. Witness what she did with William Barr. Witness what she did when Trump tweeted at her. Right. After she withdrew, Donald J. Trump, troll in chief, asshole piece of shit. Too bad. We will miss you, Kamala. And she tweeted back, don't worry, Mr. President. I'll see you at your trial. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're not even watching the debates anymore. So the, you know, <laughs> her potential performance at a debate stage you know, next uh, year might not be the best. Um, I'm um, watching the clips. Category. I'm watching the SNL parodies. <laughs> Poor Maya Rudolph. Who will think of Maya Rudolph? Yeah, like, I, gonna... just, I just take your point. But in order to win the presidency, you have to run a very good campaign. And, you know, so if you don't have that campaign, if you don't have those uh, kinds of chops, and if you lose California, <laughs> the state where you're a senator, you got to get And you're best known, and she was in fourth place in polling in California, which yeah. isn't a terrific endorsement. Yeah, yeah. you got you got you got to get off. That, that debate stage point ain't going to carry. To preserve her viability for the VP slot, yeah. which is definitely if we're going to have a white candidate going to oh, a white candidate at the top of the ticket, definitely we're going to have a person of color uh, as VP. We should accept nothing else. Uh, and but, also for AG. Yeah. Well, yeah, for some AG is, is where I have started to see her. I'm trying to imagine Biden Harris. I don't know. Buttigieg Harris. California. Nobody needs California. I mean, like, I don't think that she's going to be a very good VP candidate for that reason, but she is positioning herself to, to be an option. All right. Well, goodbye, Kamala Harris. We will see you at Donald Trump's trial in the Senate too. Next, <laughs> we are going to talk about Three movies that are really worth your time. Dan, thank you. Thanks. I can't be made angry, Rich. Not today. Can't be riled up. Mm-hmm. Not gonna happen because I am calm. And the reason I'm calm, this app called, could you possibly guess what this app is called? I'm going to guess uh, Sleep Time or Calm. Yes. Calm. Calm. In Missouri, sorry, we just pronounced it calm. Well, it is the number one app for sleep and relaxation. It can really transform your nights, which means better days. Check out, if you don't believe it, sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories, but for adults. They make calm. They can help you fall into a deep, natural sleep in minutes. Stories are narrated by iconic voices like LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman. Put me right to sleep. I'm gonna get some for my sheets. If you go to calm.com slash blabbermouth, you'll get 25% off a calm premium subscription. It includes hundreds of sleep stories and a ton of other content like soothing music from artists like Sam Smith, mm. guided meditation, breathing exercises, and so much more that you can do in your sleep or while you're falling asleep. Over 60 million people use calm. Join them today and get the sleep you need tonight. For a limited time, Blabbermouth listeners can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Blabbermouth. It comes with unlimited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com slash Blabbermouth. That's calm.com slash Blabbermouth. Chase Burns, hello. Hello. Jasmine Kaimig. Hi. Hi. You have something to say to Kamala yeah, Harris. I just, I just wanted to say, as an African-American voter, that I could not wait to see Kamala Harris leave. Um, and I think that it's weird that as soon as she left, people were kind of uh, treating her like she was Angela Davis out here <laughs> fighting the fight. Um, and... Uh, I, I think that black voters, you know, I obviously want to see a person of color in the White House. That would 
I love that, but I don't think that she's really pro black people. And I, I, I think that her, her record shows that. And while I lament, you know, there being no people of color on the debate stage, I also don't miss, <laughs> don't miss Booker. I don't miss Tulsi Gabbard. I don't miss uh, Kamala Harris. Who, I'm just curious, who is kind of leading the horse race in your mind? Right Honestly, now? Bernie. Bernie. All right. <laughs> Oh, you have those Bernie socks. Yeah, I have those Bernie yeah. socks. So Wow, calling her out. <laughs> well, and I, I heard on The View last night from uh, from uh, Sunny Hostin that uh, you, Bernie and uh, Warren are polling highest with uh, younger black voters. Yeah, yeah. Because people like to trot out that, uh, you know, blacks love Biden or whatever, but it's mostly older black people, um, like people who are my age, uh, people who are a little bit older than me. Um, Bernie is kind of our candidate. And when we say older black people, we mean boomers. Like yeah. boomers, boomers <laughs> support Biden. That's why Biden has such a high polling. Yeah. To quote Dan Savage, enough of your millennial malarkey. Let's talk about movies. Movies. You saw Atlantics recently, Jasmine, and you loved it. Yeah, I actually saw it at the Orcas Island Film Festival um, in October, and it's since been picked up by Netflix, and it's kind of their push um, into the African market. Uh, they're really looking at trying to get more content from African filmmakers, um, and so Atlantics was directed by someone who's French-Senegalese, and it's set in Senegal, um, and it follows two lovers, uh, Ada and Suleiman, and Suleiman is a worker. Um, at, at, he's building this this giant tower, and he's been denied his wages. And Ada um, is promised to a, a very rich man, but um, they they fall in love. And uh, one night he disappears. Uh, him and all the other boys in town um, take a raft uh, to the ocean to try to sail to Spain to find better economic opportunities. Um, and it's implied that they don't make it. Uh, and so obviously Ada's upset and on her wedding night, um, she learns that someone has seen him, right? And it's almost impossible for that to happen. And so, um, it's this really kind of beautiful, um, moody exploration about love. Uh, it's a little bit about labor and capital as well. Um, and it's set in this like beautiful seaside town. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, images of the ocean. Um, and, sh uh, the, the, the woman who directed it, Madi Diop, um, she was actually the first black woman to ever have a film in competition at Cannes, mm. which is, it's always great to hear that. But then you're like, why did it take, it's 2019. Like, why did it take this long? Um, but she, she recruited two, unknowns essentially uh and they do they're fantastic to watch um on film and um it's on netflix so it, it's pretty pretty available um i think that it's in contention for one of i think it's one of the best films to, this, of this year wow. um and i really hope to see that it performs you know well at in the awards category um, so the title again is Atlantics, Atlantics, and you're probably a Netflix subscriber, although I didn't get paid to say that, <laughs> blabbermouth Facebook critics. Uh, so if you are, you can watch it right now. And if you're not, it's, it's not too expensive to Is uh, it screaming? 
No, it's not. Um, I think I think in some cities it, it is in theaters, but I, I feel like at this point it's perhaps passed out. Because with a lot of these <laughs> streaming services, they're running them in uh, cinemas and movie theaters now because they want them to win awards. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there's like a new requirement by the Oscars that it needs to be screened in X amount of theaters for X amount of time. Well, slightly more expensive because you do have to see it in the theater is A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers biopic. Did you grow up watching uh, Mr. Rogers? I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about this. I did. And so I'm a Gen Xer. And what I wanted to ask both of you is whether Mr. Rogers has any sort of like cachet or meaning for you. I totally used to watch it. Um, And I I mean, I can't really recall it too strongly. I get it mixed up with Barney a little bit in my brain. Um, But I, I when I lived in Kansas, I we my mom used to put it on all the time. What about you, Chase? I, from a young age, found Mr. Rogers to be very scary. Um, I don't know. I'm not. Wow. I'm not saying it's his fault, uh, but I always just turn on and be like, "That guy is gonna do bad things to me." I Why? Never, I never trusted Mr. Rogers. I didn't like that there was an old man playing with a puppet, and I was supposed to be like, "Yeah, like just hang out with me." I didn't like it. Um, I was also. I grew up around in a really rural area with a lot of religious uh, conservatives and uh, those older men you couldn't trust. So maybe I was projecting onto Mr. Rogers, but I maybe. also think that we shouldn't. <laughs> I, men who like to only hang out with children, we should, I don't know, be wary of. Well, <laughs> someone I watched the movie with said her biggest relief of the movie is that it didn't end with him being exposed as a pedophile. Let's talk for a second about Mr. Rogers, who is this, like, what, icon of civility and uh generosity and pure enduring empathy is how i see and curiosity as well yeah and so he somehow managed to live in this culture with the rest of us you know and not be just uh not have his soul shredded not be cynical not uh become a jerk who's fighting jerks on their jerky terms but just someone who kind of lived by his own uh, sense of right and wrong and stubbornly did his thing and actually produced a body of work of great beauty and lasting impact. It, it's That to me is what was heartening about the experience of watching the movie, uh, which I saw for matinee prices in Montana. So actually it was like cheaper than cents. Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. How much it um, and there are a lot of uh, really wonderful things i thought stylistically about a beautiful day in the neighborhood one is it is slowed down it moves at the mr rogers pace which is totally foreign to the twitter pace or the youtube pace or the facebook pace or the media trying to keep up with the internet pace or cnn or fox or whatever it's just on a different rhythm than all of that. And it is so relaxing Mm -hmm. to return to, I guess, from my perspective, or to maybe inhabit for the first time for other people, I I imagine. And not to not to do like a spoiler alert, but there's there's a moment in there where the film gets away with a full minute of silence. And it's very it's profoundly Moving. I don't want to describe it too much because it will be a spoiler, but but just the uh, kind of gutsiness to say, I'm going to trust in in what I've created here and how well I've captured the audience at this point. And I'm going to sit them in silence for a full minute 
essentially asking them to do work, to reflect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was really, uh, for me, a unique movie-watching experience and kind of stunning. And then Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is yeah, Tom Hanks. Yeah, so America's dad is playing, <laughs> um, is playing Mr. Rogers. Is that right? Yeah, he is. Um, this is just a quick question. It's a little bit of a digression, but it, Tom Hanks isn't hot, right? I, Tom Hanks is hot. Not, I don't want to like bang Tom Hanks, but I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. Right. I just, we'll, I, we'll, I, we'll, we'll I take that, that as often. the binding opinion there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't find Tom Hanks super hot, but I didn't find Mr. Rogers hot. So I don't need a hot person <laughs> playing Mr. Rogers. <laughs> well, if you found Mr. Rogers hot, I think that's, that's worthy of another podcast segment <laughs> of it in itself. But I didn't. Don't get it twisted, Breitbart. I did not. Fine, Mr. Rogers hot. So therefore, I don't mind whether, you know, if Tom Hanks isn't hot, it's all right. Well, and I haven't seen it, but I've heard that Tom Hanks talks about how he doesn't do necessarily like a directly faithful uh, Mr. Rogers impersonation. Is that right? Which I kind of prefer. It's evocative, would you say, of Mr. Rogers? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I heard an interview uh, that the director of the movie gave uh, with Terry Gross, where she talked about how Tom Hanks has just his own um, connection with the American people at this point, whether it's, you know, <laughs> fiction or whatever. Wow. He does. No, but he, he really he's, does. Yeah. he's like America's dad. Yeah. He is he is uh, this Mr. Rogers like embodiment or uh, recipient of projections about purity and decency and calmness and whatever and so in that way i I think it works he's not exactly like mr rogers if you go back and watch old clips but he he evokes him well enough Mm -hmm. and for people who are media junkies or even journalists there's also we've uh, i've neglected to bring in this whole subplot about mr rogers in a beautiful day in the neighborhood tangling with a very aggressive very jaded uh, very troubled investigative journalist from Esquire, and this is based on a real thing, uh, who was there to write a profile of him and expose Mr. Rogers. So kind of coming in with the attitude of this dude must, there must, must be, be something appealing. wrong yeah. with this guy. Look, I'm just the investigative journalist in the room trying to figure it out. Um, yeah. I'm not an investigative journalist, but lest we sit too long in kind of uh, hero making around Tom Hanks and his portrayal of Mr. Rogers, which you know, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is a movie that you should go and see. It's good. Tom Hanks, <laughs> when you dig into his background, as Chase Burns helpfully has, Look, getting all the way into the DVD or VHS, sorry. This crates, one's a DVD. Yeah. DVD. All right. We, let's open the oppo research file on Tom Hanks. <laughs> okay. So, while, I mean, uh, here I am just bringing up the dirt. No, I, I, I've just been watching, because I have a fetish for retired media, I guess, uh, the early uh, films and movies and TV shows of Tom Hanks. Um, and what I think it's really interesting when we talk about him being America's dad, because I do think that that's sort of, that's the image I have of him. And that's the image that he really refined in the late eighties and the nineties. But when he came onto the scene, his first movie was, uh, he knows you're alone. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Um, it's like a Halloween esque uh, slasher movie huh. and, uh, he plays sort of an affable guy, but there's sort of this menacing quality. And then his first big break, um, which I've been sort of watching for some reason, I can't stop, uh, is this TV show called bosom buddies. Have you ever, has anyone watched it? it was- I watched the YouTube clip that you gave me and I have a like 
deep memory of somewhere the, it's there yeah the um opening intro song is yeah. in the back of my brain so i must have watched it as a kid so, so bosom buddies was really popular in 1980 <laughs> <laughs> how dare you call oh, me that old? <laughs> well that's just that's the year it, uh it's the one year it really hit the scene um and the the general premise of it um it was a major sitcom show and it was about two men that their apartment in new york city suddenly gets demolished and so they have to move into a new uh apartment building and they move into the susan b anthony Hotel, which they then discover is women only. And so they start dressing in drag um, and tricking all of these women into thinking that they're women. And then they live in the Susan B. Anthony Hotel. And so it's called Bosom Buddies. It stars Tom Hanks as Kip Wilson or Buffy Wilson, his female counterpart, and uh, Peter Scolari, who's on Girls. He was the dad on Girls most recently. Um, and he plays Henry Desmond or uh, Hildegard Desmond. And uh, it's wild <laughs> i just love you translating bosom buddies in this tone that conveys that this is problematic well okay no no actually it's what's really interesting is that uh the creators thought it was too so the the they didn't want this to be a a, a show about drag and one of the reasons that's problematic is because they use uh their female identities only to trick women it is it's it's funny <laughs> yeah, not not for evil just for <laughs> laughs like you know, and so it's like it's funny when it's not just blatantly mis- misogynist but they literally put on women's clothes one these buffoons they could never put on a wig like this like they suddenly transform and they've got pads and wigs so it's very sitcom fantasy but they sort of these women are just completely like oh yes you're totally a woman and then they get close to them and it just presents this image that is today would would not pass it's clearly it borders on transphobia or just blatant transphobia in some cases um but it's not what's what's hard about the show is that the actors are really great the writing is often really good what was weird is that when the creators went to go pitch the show they said that they wanted it sort of like some like it hot which has drag elements in it and the producers were like yes we're gonna put drag in the show and the creators didn't want to and then they sort of use it in a really weird way and then in the second season they stopped doing the drag thing and then abc canceled it so it's sort of like it's this show that was super popular in 1980 um and then it just completely went away when they took out the drag element so it's a very it's a very weird show to watch but it it's had a resurgence paul rudd uh did a full like redo of the original opening sequence which is very funny people Mm -hmm. should watch it uh the original sequence and the the um the new one from paul rudd and that's on youtube yeah uh the series actually is uh not streaming so you do have to get it on dvd it's sort of like it's the dark web of the tom hanks (laughs) (laughs) uh background all right well so tom hanks has some apologizing to do i guess about i don't i don't think he has apologizing to do because i don't think it was his fault he was a young actor maybe just one tweet That's, that's, (laughs) that's my goal just one tweet being like hey I, I was a part of this project, and obviously the conversation has changed around it now. Right. Well, we revived it in 2014. No one was apologizing, so. All right. Well, we will wait for Tom Hanks to <laughs> offer his abject apology for Bosom Buddies. Meanwhile, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks is worth seeing, if you ask me, and if you ask Jasmine. On a completely different note, Atlantics. Yes. Just <laughs> streaming right now on Netflix. All right, Jasmine, thank you. Thank you. Chase, thank you. Thanks. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Dan Savage, Rich Smith, Jasmine Kimig, Chase Burns, or me, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063, or dive on into our Blabbermouth Podcast Facebook group. 
Thanks as always to Ahane Filege Aluo for making the music we use on the show each week and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. 